Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Can you imagine? Let us pray. Holy, gracious, awesome, almighty God. As we open your word and read from it. As I proclaim it. I pray that my words, that our thoughts, may all be for your glory. That all of those things that distract us, all of those things that press in on us and raise up the anxieties within us, that you may quiet those and draw us near. Still, those voices that our anxious hearts and weary minds may be fed by you and you alone. And that you, living water, may flow in us and through us. And that you may draw us deeper into you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So today we're talking about fellowship. And fellowship is kind of a vast concept. And there is, within that broad definition of the word fellowship, there's a whole lot that goes on that I think may not necessarily be our best understanding of fellowship. Because in fellowship, often, it's just mingling. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think when we talk about biblical fellowship, it draws us deeper. Uh, we talked on, on Monday morning, and, and someone said it was, it's a sharing of lives. When we talk about fellowship, when it's at its best, it's a deep connection that is formed, that bonds our lives together to where we truly share our greatest joys and our deepest regrets and sorrows and pains. It's where we know each other on an intimate level. And we know what's going on in each other's lives. I think, I think true fellowship is more than just how are you. It's, it's as uh, the, the cook at Columbia Seminary used to say, it's a what's really going on. Um, it's a care and concern. And so we're going we're gonna to use Ephesians, the first part of chapter 4, to look at fellowship. Ephesians is, is kind of Paul's letter to the church, kind of telling the church how to be the church. Um, and we're going to get into this a little later, but when we think of the early church, we often have this idyllic image of the saints of the church who knew the answers to all the big questions and they just gathered round and, and just sang happy songs and ate meals together and were just so glad to be together that there wasn't any conflict. And then we read the New Testament and we go, gosh, these folks were really messed up. They really got a lot of things wrong. There was a lot of conflict going on. So much of the New Testament, so much of Paul's writings is dealing with conflict. And so we know that, that fellowship is difficult. It's messy. You know, we all have, all of our personalities have these sharp edges 
and then we, you know, we all gather together and our lives brush up against each other and all those, sometimes those rough edges rush up against other people. And so Paul here in Ephesians is, is it's a call to unity. So it's Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to the people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens. So he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to know the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. And Paul, what Paul does here is, is it's really amazing. In the first part of this, he puts such an emphasis on unity, right? There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one calling, one God, one Father. There's one. We are one. And yet, we are many. We have all of these talents. We have all of these gifts. We have all these lives. And yet, and then at the end, he kind of closes us back together. We're a whole body, joined together by all these ligaments. And we are each working as part of the body. And so Paul says, we need to be one. And in our diversity, we need to have unity. And we need to work for that. And it's simple to, to talk about, but to live it out is so challenging. You know, I think about, about weddings. And weddings are massive undertakings, usually. I know ours, we spend a year and a half planning our wedding. 
and they're, you know, coordinated dresses, and you order enormous amounts of food, and you work on the invitation list, and it's this big undertaking. You have this idea in your mind of how everything is going to look. And by that, I mean Rachel has this idea in her mind about everything's going to look, and I say, yes, that sounds great. But you know, there, there's so much effort put into a wedding, and in a way, there's so much optimism. Right? Everything is going to be perfect at a wedding, and it's all going to work out wonderfully. And then, usually about three weeks to four weeks later, you realize that this other person is always there. They never leave. And you realize they have all these habits that you didn't know about. Because they didn't tell you about them. And they eat strange things at strange hours of the day. And you're wondering, you're like, this is so much different than I imagined. It's so much harder. It's the difference between a wedding and a marriage. Weddings, they're not easy, but they're fun. And, and, and everybody's optimistic at a wedding. But marriage is tough. Marriage takes work. It takes years and years and years of hard work, of, of sacrificing, of seeking the good of the relationship over the good of the individual. Weddings are, you know, it may seem simple, but then marriage, it's like raising kids. I remember when, when, we, were, when, when we were pregnant, <laughs> when Rachel was doing all the work of carrying Caleb, but you plan out uh, of how it's going to be, and everybody... When, when, you know, before you have your first kid, you're the perfect parent, right? You think about, well, you know, I'll discipline my kid this way, and, and I'll make sure that, that, that they raise up to be, to be the perfect kid, right? And then so you're in the grocery store, and you hear this kid screaming 14 aisles over, and you see this parent with dark circles under their eye dragging this child out by an ankle through the parking lot, and you think, I'll never do that. And I remember it was the third night we had Caleb. Because see, it's great, at, at, at Women's East, you know, the nurse comes at night and says, do you want us to take the baby? And we say, of course, you're the expert, take the baby. <laughs> and then that, you take the baby home. And you're sitting at home that first night. And you keep waiting for the nurse to show up and say, do you want me to come take the baby? <laughs> and you realize about 10 o'clock at night, there's nobody coming to take the baby. And here we are, we're stuck with this thing that, that screams and won't stop. And it has this boundless energy and it's holding us hostage, we're not allowed to leave. And so what do we do? And when in our minds, you know, we had, we were going to be the perfect parents and we had it all figured out and our kids were going to be great and they're going to get full scholarships to Harvard. And there it is, you know, we have the dark circles under our eye. And the people 14 miles over in the grocery store are wondering when we're going to shut that kid up and we're dragging him through the parking lot by the ankle. It's easy when you plan it out in your head, but in the actuality, when the rubber meets the road, it's really tough. It's hard work. And the same is true of our life of faith. We come to church on Sundays. And it's easy in these walls 
to be a Christian, to understand, to talk about a life of faith and, and to read scriptures and, and we can explain them and it all makes sense in here in a, in a sermon. You know, I listen to a lot of sermons and I get to the end of a sermon I'm like, great, I've got my whole life figured out. I know what I'm doing wrong and, and here I'm going to fix it. But then we, we go out into the world. We leave these walls behind and it's tough. It's hard work to be a Christian when our faith meets the world, when they butt up against each other and we have to figure out what it means. How do we be Christians in our work, in our family, in our relationships? How do we live out our faith? How do we figure out what it means to be a Christian? It's one thing, it's, it's not easy to be a Christian here. When everybody else, we're all on the same page. But you go to work, and you're dealing with, with maybe a co-worker who's kind of in that gray area, and you're not totally sure that's ethical. Or you have family members, you've got conflict in your family, or extended family. Everybody has a family member like that. If not, I have some. You, you can have them. How do we deal with that? How do we maintain that, that relationship? How do we love them? It's hard, hard work to figure it out. What our faith looks like on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday morning and Friday and Saturday night. How do we figure it out? Or when life hits us. You know, life just kind of barges in through the front door and sits down on the couch and starts eating our food. We have to figure out how to deal with it. How do we deal with tragedy, with heartbreak, with illness, with death? How do we deal with that? And we talk about it in here, but when it actually shows up in our lives, when loved ones get sick and there doesn't seem to be hope of physical healing, we have to deal with it. It seems almost simple from in here, but when it intersects with our lives out in the real world, we have to figure out how to deal with that. And that's what fellowship is for. That's what true fellowship is. is it's the kind of relationships we have with people in the church who know about those things that are going on in our real lives. Who know when they say, how are you, they mean it. And when we tell them, they listen from the heart, from the gut. And they say, I'll, I'll, I want to talk more with you about this. When relationships are falling apart, they want to say, hey, remember that sermon? Remember that Bible study? Let's sit down and talk about what that really means for you here and now. What does resurrection hope look like in your life when loved ones are sick? Or have passed away. What's this look like when the rubber meets the road? We figure it out together. Because what happens, I think what is happening in our country, we have this consumerist mentality when it comes to religion. You know, that, that we come and we consume, but then it's kind of this isolated part of our lives, and we go on and we kind of do this on our own. We get isolated. But then when trials and tragedy strike, we're isolated. And we say, what does this mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? God, where are you? And if we don't have true fellowship, if all we have is mingling, we don't have anybody to help us answer that question. We don't have anybody to help us work through our biggest and deepest questions. That's what fellowship 
does. It's there for us. In the highest joys and the deepest sorrows of life, true fellowship is there in those moments of great joy and laughter and deep pain. And fellowship says, I'm going to sit with you and figure out what it means to be a Christian here and now in the midst of this. I'm going to help us figure out what resurrection hope means. And if nothing else, I'm going to sit with you and I'm going to hold your hand and we're both going to cry about this. Because that's what Jesus did when Lazarus died. He wept. And sometimes we need someone just to weep with us. And so when we talk about fellowship, this is the kind of relationships that reaches out and doesn't just say, how are you, but reaches deep into a life and notices when we're absent. Notices when, when you can tell that someone's going through deep struggles. It's what true fellowship... These are the relationships we need to work to cultivate. And it takes work. It doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes spending time together. And it's not just about us consuming. It's about us giving. Because I guarantee there are people in this church who need you to reach out and get involved in the mess of their life because they're struggling to figure out what is my resurrection hope? What is God doing? What is the purpose of this? Where is God in this? Somebody needs you to sit down with them and say, let's talk about that. Let's share our lives. Let's intersect. And work together. And figure this out. Out, so you are not alone in this. I am with you. This is what Christ promised to the disciples. To always be with him. This is what Christ promised to us. You notice if there was anybody who ever had an excuse to isolate themselves from fellowship. It was Jesus, right? He surrounded himself with 12 disciples. And he knew full well that one of them would betray him. One of them would deny him. The rest would scatter and he could have easily said, these guys aren't good enough for me. These guys are messed up. I'm going to do this on my own. But Christ surrounded himself with fellowship. With people who would be with him and people he could be with so he could teach them what it means to be disciples. What it means to be the church. What it means to follow him. And it's not easy. We know that there's conflict. We know that our rough edges bump into other people and their rough edges bump into us. And it's so tempting to say, forget it. And to just go off where it's safe. On our own. But that's not safe. It seems easier at the time. But we're making it harder. Because then there aren't other people to encourage us along the way. Then there aren't other people to challenge us. To console us. To celebrate with us. You know, Peter talks about the devil walking around like a lion. Seeking souls to devour. What we need are people to stand with us. And we need to work to promote unity. It takes humility. It takes gentleness. It takes patience. Nobody likes patience. Caleb doesn't like it. I don't like it. My dad doesn't like it. Nobody likes being patient. But we have to be patient with one another. Because people are patient with us. I'm not perfect. You all know that. Some of you may have a list. None of us are perfect. But people bear with us and we bear with one another. Because we're doing this together because it matters. It matters that we're there for each other. 
It matters that in the deepest and darkest valleys of your life, there is someone who can hold your hand and remind you that Christ is with you and remind you that there is a light at the end of the valley, that death shall not overwhelm, and that life and love wins. That we have a resurrection hope that shall not be shaken and that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. True fellowship reminds us of that. And so friends, I think we need to be challenged. I think we need to be challenged to think about our fellowship, about how deeply involved we are with one another. To make sure that our relationships aren't surface relationships, but make sure that we get, are willing to, to get involved. As my therapist says, to pull up the rug and look under that mess and say, well, what's really going on here? And to put on some boots and wade into it and say, well, let's deal with this. Are we willing to do that with and for one another? Will we love each other with that kind of depth and seek to be the kind of disciples that Christ calls us to be? To seek unity so that we may speak the truth in love so that we together, we who have a responsibility to each other, right at the the baptisms last week, we made promises to these young people and we've made promises to each other That we may grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. That's the point of all this. We're growing up together into Christ. And from the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. You have a role to play to promote the body's growth in building itself up in love. May we have the strength and the courage and the boldness to get involved in each other's lives deeply and share fellowship that points always to our resurrection hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we give you thanks. You are our hope to which we cling. You are the rock in the midst of a roaring ocean. You are the light in our darkness. And Lord, I pray that you may bind us together and that we may help each other fix our eyes on you. That we may set our resolve to stay faithful and that we may encourage one another. And that when one of us is walking through a deep, dark valley, we may encourage them. We may weep and mourn with them, but we may be with them. And when one of us is celebrating, then we may gather and laugh together. And let your joy be infectious. That as a body, we may grow up into you together. That bind us together, Lord. In your Son's holy and precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.